Everybody, welcome to another installment of Show to View with Mike G, the show of life, the show of Brazil, the show of making whiskey, having an interesting philosophy about said whiskey, and so much more. Today I sit down, and you know, I'm surprised I've done this before. I've known Jared for quite some time, but we've never sat down, and today it's great to get into the mind of Jared Hempstead, the master distiller for Balcones Whiskey, one of my favorite whiskeys, something that really puts Texas on the map. But I'm really about the philosophy of flavors, terroir, if you will, the ecosystems of these yeasts and all these kinds of things. And Jared dives into it. Incredible chat. Very, very pensive and thought provoking. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this great chat with Jared Hempstead. My dad did a lot of different things, but he was an Air Force for a while when I was born. So we were, we were in Japan, we were in Okinawa when I was born. Oh, wow. We weren't there long. We left before I was two. And then he was stationed at, oh uh, man, North or South Carolina. I want to say it was South Carolina. I can't remember the name of the base. Mm-hmm. But then he left. He did his eight years, got out, and uh, went to seminary and became a music minister. Oh, no so, um so he was a music minister in the States for a while while I was in seminary. And then when he got out, he decided to become a missionary. So we moved to Brazil. And um, of course, everyone just imagines that we were out in the jungle and we had machetes and he's preaching to um, natives. But he taught, we lived in the capital, yeah. you know, multi-million, very, you know, international city. And there's a seminary there. And so he was a music teacher. So basically he was teaching people how to conduct, how to read music, how to write for a choir, how to arrange, wow. depending on what, you know, instruments your church has, how do, how do you take some sheet music you bought for a song and convert it for whatever you're dealing with, you know, whether it's a rock, you know, like guitars and drums, or if you've got strings or horns or whatever. Right. Um, and then he did that for also about eight years with a year of furlough. It's another nine. Um, and then they moved back to the States and uh, they're in Georgia now. He's retired. I think he's still kind of moonlights. I think he's still doing some, some kind of part-time church minister, music minister stuff for some sure. for a small church there in North Georgia. But. Is, is it safe to say that music was a part of the culture and the thread of the family? To some degree, but it was all that. I mean, it wasn't... Um, I didn't pick up an instrument until college. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, we did piano lessons for a few years, you know, like junior high. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't... Uh, it was kind of an afterthought when I finally was around friends that were playing music and stuff. Um, yeah. And I was like, I'll pick something up, see if I can help participate in any way. And of course, if you know how punk scene goes, like that's, that's, <laughs> it's mostly will, right? It's, that's not, right, supposed, yeah. it's not really all that much ability. No. And of course, you do it long enough, then you actually get, you can, you can become halfway decent at something. Well, you turn definitely into, not a requirement. No, well, you turn into Michael Anthony from Van Halen, right? Where you can play eight notes till the fucking sun sets every yeah, single yeah. day, right? Yeah. Well, that's kind of interesting, though. It, it, you know, we sometimes rally against what our folks do. Did that have anything to do with it? Or was it just music didn't catch on for you as a player until college? I just always liked it. But I, yeah, I just 
didn't really play anything. And we, I mean, we, we'd grab my dad's acoustic guitar and fart around, but even him, he wasn't like, um, he was doing that for work. Yeah. And well, we played records at home and stuff. And like, I wore out the first like boom box I got, I wore out surfing USA until it wouldn't play anymore, <laughs> you know, at like six or seven or something. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and it's interesting too, how those, the, your parents' records too, that whole thing. Uh-huh. But like for mine, I like a lot of different kinds of music, but the fact that things like, um, Kenny Rogers, Jim Croce, it's just like, um, nobody really listens to Don McLean, like right, right. his actual material, but like, mm-hmm. it's got some really great records that he did. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that's like, yeah, it's on vinyl, it's at the house, and you don't realize until later that you have a friend that isn't familiar with father and son, Cat Stevens, and you're mm-hmm. like, that wasn't playing at your house? Like, what's wrong? Like, you know, that's an amazing... Um, so you kind of don't appreciate maybe some of those things. And even if you get into weird, more subgenres, like we're talking about punk music and stuff, those feel like a little bit like outliers now, but they're yeah. like part of your story and part of kind of formative, you know, like... So they're always there. Well, you don't, I love Phil Collins and I will fight to the death for folks who want to say Phil Collins isn't as great as he is, but I didn't like him until I was an adult. You don't Mm -hmm. want to admit you like Phil Collins because your mom plays it on vinyl. You know, it just takes on this whole thing. And so then it's like, well, bad religions for me, right? Or Fugazi's for me. So I get that kind of, that shift. But Yeah. And you're just younger enough too that, you know, coming off of, um, Genesis, like, I'm just enough, I'm just old enough to like, no, you were experiencing him in a gap when it's like he's doing Disney, you know? <laughs> no, come not on. Not quite, but, yeah, yeah. but just a little bit before that, Invisible Touch was about as cool as it came, you know, when that came yeah. out, that was about yeah. as cool as it, as it got, Oof. you know? Yeah. So, so you're talking about, yeah, you don't want to be, he, that's your mom's, but like in my mind, I'm like, no, it's, man, that's Phil Collins' yeah. you know, late Genesis stuff for me. So oh, man. that was well, like, man. absolutely cool that's all still one of the greatest singles ever. And, you know, Franz Ferdinand ripped it off in the guitar mm-hmm. riff for take me out for those of you who haven't heard that kind of comparison. All right. But here's something that is kind of interesting yeah. part military kid part uh, missionary kid. Yeah. I, I moved around a lot too, like about every four years since I was maybe four years old and it was different reasons, but did you find it difficult having to keep adapting, keep assimilating, if you will, new schools, new culture, or was that something you kind of thrived on? No, it was, it was pretty difficult and pretty weird. I think it's still weird. Um, they talk about like uh, third culture kids, mm-hmm. but you know, when you move back to Waco, Texas, like your senior year of high school, um, after eight, nine years away, you know, you were foreign, you were foreign there. You're foreign when you're living overseas, you know, you're an American. Mm-hmm. And then you come back to the States and have like, you know, at 17 and maybe three of those years that you remember that you're old, you were old enough to remember. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it might, it, it's, it's pretty foreign too. Um, but yeah, I think that's part of the trajectory of just kind of like, yeah, I don't know some of the normal, I think answers or trajectories of what's expected to, to go on next. Right. After well, high school, they're just like, yeah, that's like none of those sound interesting. And um, luckily, I think the creativity on my mom's side, there's a ton of school teachers. I mean, I have so many aunts and cousins and 
my mom was a teacher. Um, so we have this weird, like all of that, but then there's still a ton of music. So I've got some cousins and that do like marching band stuff at the, at high schools. And, um, but then on my dad's side, his dad was also a minister. Both my grandfathers were also Southern Baptist ministers. Oh, wow. Um, so, um, long line of long, long, uh, legacy there. But, um, but my, my dad's mom was like an avid, just kind of hobbyist. Like she wasn't like a uh, gallery, but she painted all the time. Like she, she was always painting, um, you know, little kind of folky instruments. Like, um, is it just the dulcimer? It's just like mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the slide dulcimer. And you know, like, um, what's the little one with like, it's got nails in it and you like plink, mm. plink along, just stuff like that was always at their house. Um, and I remember my, my grandmother doing just like, you know, she'd get a picture of us or something and she'd paint, she painted a picture of my little sister at one point that she still has and just stuff like that. That was always like for, for coming from a background, you would think that maybe would have been a little bit, you know, uh, the normal career options are the only thing that's okay. Mm-hmm. I knew before I left high school, that I wanted to do art, art in college. Oh, and wow. I don't remember once ever being anything but completely encouraged to, to go do that. I mean, I did it at, I did it at Baylor. Oh, yeah, yeah, so it's yeah. not like I went to Berkeley or something, but um, I never, there wasn't any second where it was ever implied or like I ever felt like that was like discouraged or not, not an okay thing to go do. Yeah, um, that's actually, that's incredible because yeah. uh, talking to many father-son, father-handing the reins of distillery and distilling down to their son, um, uh, Mr. Teeling for one is one, Jack, I talked, you know, interviewed him some time ago and kind of talked about that same kind of handoff. But here's the thing, you know, it's multi-generational Southern Baptist, you know, family on the maternal, excuse me, paternal side. Any expectation there that you would follow the footsteps of your father and his father's father? I don't think so. Um, it's kind of old school and maybe patriarchal as it is, I think some usually that falls on the first son, right? <laughs> so, um, and my older brother does run a, a, a Christian summer camp in Georgia. Mm. Uh, you know, they got a bunch of acreage up there and horses and you know, football fields and all that stuff. Um, so to some degree, I think he, he's carried that on in, in his own way. Um, you know, and he does Bible studies and stuff there and he's kind of like the spiritual leader, I guess, at, 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 at his camp. Yeah. Um, so as long as the oldest one does it, I think everyone else is kind of off the hook, but I don't know. I don't, I don't ever, even with them, I, I don't, it's weird. There was no, I don't feel like there was ever any, any pressure to like that, that career path that like somebody, you know, being kind of pushed into. Yeah. Well, when you ministry, as I was mentioned, I was watching the new Dave Dazon documentary, which I guess maybe not so new now, but, he really, he's a real transparent dude, almost maybe to the point where you can peer into his soul and then damage him as, a, as someone that's on looking, mm-hmm. you know, it's really, really, really revealing. And I, I love that about Aquarius. Now that's a whole other conversation, but Dave is on. But the thing is, is he, as he experienced more, he has two kids. You have two kids at two, I think mm-hmm. as well, you know, you guys are married, been married for quite some time, both of y'all. And he kept having these crises of faith because of how he saw people treating each other, because of how the secular world let itself in and he embraced it, or punk rock is incredibly secular and anti-establishment. 
Was it ever hard to kind of balance what was your core foundation and your family and your belief and potentially how you even view yourself in the universe, but also trying to grow to be creative and letting these other kinds of schools of thought in? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, no, that was always kind of part of my problem is that um, I feel like from a pretty early age, probably like 15 or so, um, my my wheels are turning in a weird way and I'm asking weird questions. And I mean, I was explicitly told um, at some point that I needed to stick to the basics, that the kind of the stuff I was going, yeah, but what about this? And what about this? And I literally, I, mean, I, was, I was reading the Bible on my own and trying to bug my youth pastor or my pastor or my dad with questions that, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, they pretty explicitly kind of put, tried to push me back to just stick with the, you know, the table of contents basically. Wow. Um, so that was, so I feel like I was wrestling with it. It was never an easy fit. It was never just like, um, oh, I'm here because the culture makes sense or because the rules make sense or mm-hmm. because this feels like home, you know, um, which especially in the South can be pretty common. It, it, it was always, it was always kind of a tentative fit for me. Um, so that actually made it weird. It was a weird experience. Uh, and then the, the process of, uh, trying to figure out how to, how to manage relating to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't help, but, um, be affected by stuff I read or, you know, or, or even if we're being honest with ourselves and we're paying attention to what actually moves us or what actually touches us in some way that you might say is you have kind of a spiritual experience, whether that's really emotional, mm-hmm. mental, whether it's metaphor, whatever. Mm-hmm. That's what we experience. Whatever's actually going on, who knows? Some part of my brain is firing off, but that's how it feels. Mm-hmm. Um, was just as likely to happen with, uh, you know, Bob Marley or or um, Joshua Tree songs, for God's sake. That stuff was just, you know? <laughs> and and you're sitting there at 15 and going, like, I don't know if this is okay. I, surely, like, how can this not be okay? How can this not be authentic? Because this is more moving to me than religious practices during the week wow, yeah. are. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think... Yeah, I would, I would, I mean, I, I would land firmly in an agnostic. And I mean that in the truest sense that like, I really don't know. And even when your, your, one of your kids goes, you know, Mimi says that this and this is this has what happens after you die. I, I mean, I can look her straight in the eye and say, I, I really, I do not know. She may have got it all figured out. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, and hopefully I'm conveying that that's not really to me the biggest, the most important part of the whole thing is like, you know, how do we cash out or like what's going to happen when we cash out? Like, I hope that's not what we're spending most of our time thinking about. God, it's such a great point because what is always more important is the journey itself. So my father, shares someone, he retired. And I say this loosely because he's been doing some consulting or been in the restaurant biz for a long time. And he was working his way through his life. He didn't see what was happening around him. He didn't stop and smell the roses to be cliched, right? And so now he has this time and all it is about is that big cash out at the end of life. And imagine just not being able to dissipate that fear over years, but except you have to pack it all in in a couple 
of years as you sunset, you know, it's yeah. a very strange thing. And so does that, some people meditate, some people embrace their family for you. Do you consider yourself someone who really does appreciate the moment? Um, at its most basic, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I joke the guys at the distillery have a lot of laughs because of the kind of stuff that I say on the regular. Just, <laughs> um, but you know, like time's not real, not really. It's right. this idea we kind of decided to accept and function under. So in that sense, yeah. Um, I think you can over plan. I worry a lot. And partly this is like punk background, but even through, um, as you get older and job stuff and the amount of time spent, especially when you're trying to, you know, build and grow a distillery for as the most recent example, you can go through seasons where that's eating up a lot of your time. And, uh, even if it's not eating up a lot of time, sometimes it's eating up most of your energy. Um, and kind of, once again, especially coming out of like eighties hard U.S. hardcore, it's like, and the and the British you know anarchist stuff, the late seventies and eighties. Mm -hmm. It's like, is this how it happens? You know, is this how you wake up one day and go, oh, I did it too. I wasn't home. I thought I was just wanting to make something good, beautiful, something that people appreciate and makes their lives better, uh, and it. Yeah, at retirement age, and you, you end up with adult kids that don't speak to you, and you didn't have any fun. You know what I mean? Like, dude. But you, you, I think it's good though. It's kind of like death. We don't we put it off until it happens, and then we kind of get wrecked, as opposed to maybe living with that kind of this is finite. That's fine. It's part of the deal. It's coming for everyone. I can wait, and then be really unprepared for hard things that happen. Yeah. Um, so in the same way, I remember thinking with my first daughter, um, she climbed up in my lap and fell asleep, you know, like in a recliner one evening. And I remember thinking, man, oh crap, it's been a while. I don't remember the last time she did that. And then it hit me like this one time, some, sometime soon, this is going to happen and be the last time that happens, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, which at least for me, I don't, I hope, I'm sure some people living like that would maybe feel pretty dark. Mm -hmm. But for me, it just meant that I thought about that when we were doing it, um, when it would happen. Um, she's 10 and still like, she's tall and lanky and still like trying to get the two-year-old dressed this morning to get ready for daycare. And she's climbing on, the, the older one's climbing on my back. I'm just I want to sit in my lap and like, I'm trying to get some things done. And you can get annoyed and I do. But then if you can pause just long enough and breathe long enough to realize like that's a pretty cool gift that I don't think all 10 year old girls are necessarily over hugging their dads still. Um, yeah. And so, but you gotta have time. You gotta have time to slow down enough to be ready for that stuff and not just react, you know, which is hard. Um, I, so I don't know if I, I don't know if I have any kind of anchor. Yeah. I think, uh, I think presence is a big one. And I, I, I think a lot about um, kind of our elevated image of ourselves as humans and what, a lot of religious... Tell me what uh, you mean by that, then. Um, well, a lot of religious texts can feed into that. Obviously, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, we're very special. And oh, right. the Holy Text tells us so, above and beyond all other things that exist, um, that were made, I guess. Ah. Um, I'm just not sure I'm buying that. We know more and more all the time about um, 
you know, as a trauma therapist, I can't remember the, the lady's name that went, she was on break taking a vacation, but went to visit a friend that works with a, a, a refugee elephants in Africa. Mm-hmm. And as a trauma therapist, got there and was just blown away because everything about the elephant behavior was completely in line with what she sees with humans. Oh, wow. These are elephants that have seen family and friends slaughtered, you know, poached, and they're building and trying to reforge new communities separated from the place they're from and the people, the animals, the other elephants they know. Anyway, little things like that happen. It's like the more stuff like that goes on, you know, what was it? How many different words for sadness that Coco have sign language for? It was like 60. Um, we don't, we're not giving the things around us enough credit for, for consciousness and sentience. So hmm. I think it would be very valuable going forward for humans to re- re- relearn what it means to, that we're animals. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a lot of that is mostly what occupies my thinking and, and kind of when I dream about if I could just do anything. Um, so I, I get a lot of excitement and energy out of the fact that, you know, the barred owl that lives on our property had babies last summer mm-hmm. or last late spring. And I got to watch these two fuzzy, chunky owls that didn't know what they were doing kind of fart around in the yard for a few weeks before they finally were big enough to fly away. Mm-hmm. But they're out there crying and, you know, they wouldn't fly off when I came close. Or I have a mama raccoon that lives somewhere. I think she used to live in, this, in the attic, but I don't know where she lives now. But same thing. I was getting dressed this morning and she walked right up to the kitchen door, which is mostly glass, and she's just kind of looking in. But I feel like uh, being able to be a part of, uh, in some semblance, noticing their rhythms and being somewhere long enough to notice when they leave and they come back. And uh, not to anthropomorphize them or anything, you know, they're not like, we're not friends, but um, <laughs> I'm sure I feel invasive to them. They say, they say uh, John Young is a guy, he's, he does a lot of... Um, uh, outdoor education stuff and mentoring with young people. Um, I don't know him, but his, his book called What the Robin Knows, and it's about kind of bird language and what the role that birds play in the forest. And they're kind of like the traffic, they're, they're the radio yeah. uh, network. They're telling everybody what's going on. Um, and then if you get to know, he spends all this time trying to understand birds and their language and their movement and what they're doing and what they're communicating. Um, and at some point he says, yeah, I was about three or four years into this like very intense study of this, of this subject very immersive and just to find out that when I finally clicked and I understood what they were doing, that easily the first few years of it, they had just been telling everybody that I was there, (laughs) you know? And it's It's, like, so I think about that when I go into the yard too and you're hearing noises and you hear birds you haven't heard before. And the thought that like all this chatter in life, and it seems like I'm just here watching, but they're all probably saying, Hey, there's a person here. You're gossiping, man. Yeah. He's back. So, Peering into nature and understanding how it affects us and how we affect it. I think that something we've kind of been missing during shutdown, but are you an outdoor? I, you know, I saw a picture of your vintage fixie that you posted years ago and brilliant, <laughs> but maybe there's something to that, that you enjoy the outdoors. Is that a place to escape and to feel serenity or is it more family? What kinds of things do you do to get that? Yeah. I mean, I think for, even for my family, I mean, my wife's the same. She grew up on a lot of property. Uh, she lived in the, uh, Helotus outside of San Antonio, mm. right, to, right down the street from Flores country store. Um, you know, they had 30 something acres back when it 
San Antonio is definitely like out there now, but at the time they were, you know, 30 minute drive from town. Yeah. Um, so she grew up on property chasing wild turkeys and pigs in the, in the little, uh, Canyon by their house next to this huge quarry and no fences, you know, so their 40 acres is right up against someone else's 50. So they just, her and her sisters just roamed the countryside as kids, you know? Mm. Um, and then of course, growing up in Brazil, where we lived was just absolutely gorgeous. You know, you'd go, um, the highest, it's not a big waterfall by volume, water volume, but the highest free falling waterfall in South America, um, it's called Ichiquita. And it was probably like an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes from our house. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's even, that's one of those deals where you park and man, there's no, there's not a sign. There's not banisters. There's not man-made bridges. You're going to hike after parking for an hour to even get to like a swimmable area, you know, and wow. there's no security. There's no one there to make sure anyone's safe. This is just wild, beautiful. Um, so yeah, I think for both of us, we, we don't live on a huge chunk of property, but we, we live right on the edge of town and we got a, just under four acres and it's all wooded. And there's a Unitarian church behind us that has another five and same thing. There's no fence between our properties. So we can kind of wander all that. Um, and it's definitely been a huge gift during everything that went down last year yeah. um, to be able to just, yeah, we were outside a lot. Kids built the TP and, you know, go take walks, especially late spring when there's still water in the creek, you know, Texas by, mm-hmm. by August, there's no water in the creek anymore. But um, yeah, we do spend a lot of time outside and uh, it's interesting to watch with the kids who gravitates towards that. My oldest wants to be on a screen and inside and mm-hmm. the youngest one and the youngest one doesn't care if it's cold, doesn't care if it's raining, shoes come off, the clothes come off, you know, and she just wants to be outside. And there's always put, put her to bed means that you're dumping sand out of every pocket and sock and crevice uh, yeah. into the bed, you know, but uh, yeah, I, I don't, once again, I don't really, uh, I think I'm one of those weird, I know people that definitely have kind of um, left organized kind of religious traditions and kind of formulated some of their own way of doing things. And that maybe is a little bit more articulated. I, I don't feel like I ever really like replaced stuff, if that makes sense. It was kind of, um, things uh, have use or they don't have use. And if I'm being honest about what's interesting to me or what's compelling to me, it's not these things, it's these other things. Yeah. Um, and it is weird. I think my wife more than me struggles with the lack of um, kind of rituals and kind of observations and uh, even a lot of other, other friends of mine that have kind of left the church um, trying to figure out you know, can you figure out ways that maybe celebrating seasons and cycles and other stuff is meaningful and, and more concrete? Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking just the other day about like uh, how abstracted everything can get. Obviously, we know so much how in some ways the, the, the sun going up and coming down, especially having young kids around, like we know that that's not, the sun is not going around the earth. Right, right, right. But that is what you experience Mm -hmm. from this perspective and even the other perspective for the most, for most of us, which scientific discoveries and all of this, we completely, we're just taking someone else's word for that. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm not, I'm not kind of, I'm not trying to say a conspiracy thing. I'm just Mm -hmm. saying from a literal perceptive, I can experience that the sun travels across the sky every day. Like that's from, from this perspective, that's what is watchable to Mm -hmm. me, to, to my body. My organs can perceive that. All right, that's what I, well, that's what I can interpret from what my organs take in. Um, 
And I think there's something about whether it's time or these like, well, if you could see it from the moon, it's like, well, yeah, I'm a human being that lives on earth. So that's not really my vantage point. Mm-hmm. Um, how relevant really is that, you know? Um, it's a good, it's, it's a good point. You know, and so, so something that, cause I'm, as I'm listening and the way you really, it's about perception and the fact that you've lived internationally, the fact that it seems like you're open to different cultures, different people, different frames of mind, all of that. What, and it kind of shifted into whiskey, but where, where do you even get the inspiration to think of these things? Is it really planned out? Is it more guttural? Is it music? Is it art? What kind of inspires you to create and try different things? On the whiskey side? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, some of it just seems obvious. That may sound weird, mm. but like, okay. and maybe you can tell me about your experience, even with like, like with the gin recipes, for example, or something, which I also mm. don't know anything about it. None of it ever feels like a big deviation. Everything mm. always feels like you tried something, you've got a feedback loop, you're checking out what happened or didn't happen, how you feel about it. And usually there's an immediate like, oh man, you know what we should do? We should do this, or we should have tried this. Or we, we also just have a long list of things that we want to do and you, you try to isolate some variables. So if you're going to do like play around with barrel toasting or size, mm-hmm. try to leave that as the only thing. So like lay down stuff that you are very familiar with, change nothing else and just let that happen. But that means there's a really long list of like other things. It's like, okay, and then the next time we've got time and capacity to like try something weird, and you just go to the list every once in a while, and it's like, how much whiskey can we spare this year? None of it's going to be bad, but um, all right, we've been wanting to do entry-proof experiments for a while. Okay, let's do that with how many? Uh, let's take okay, let's take fifty casks of malt or something or whatever, and play around with that or yeah. whatever it is. And then finishes are kind of no-brainers. I mean, if you like a wide variety of drinks, um, I think I actually had had maybe Lupiak before I'd had Sultaren. Mm-hmm. Um, this was years. This, this was years ago. And it was like an, an immediate no-brainer that like, oh man, why is everyone doing like red dessert wine? This golden, like light champagne-y, delicious peachy stuff, like this is begging for malt to go in it or bourbon for that matter, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's a lot more common, but especially, you know, 10, 12 years ago when we got started, you're not going to find a whole lot of, some of the late, some of Jim McGowan's late work at Bowmore mm-hmm. was some of the weirder, you know, and he was doing Claret and other stuff. Um, and all that, that stuff also was, you know, it's Highland. I mean, it's kind of like more that Highland Pete vibe than like an over the top. It's, I always hate to do it, but to me, Bowmore has been always more kind of relatable to like Ben Riach Pete than, yeah. Oh, yeah. than Isla um, in that sense. But, you know, he did a lot of stuff before he left to go to Brooklady at Bowmore. And obviously at Brooklady, they did a ton of weird stuff. Um, but yeah, that idea that, that, um, did you ever get to have any of the, uh, I know Ardbeg did, Cowieless is the one that I've got when they did their unpeated releases. Um, um, no, I've never tried it. Distillery is known for, for Big Island Peat. And of course, I'm sure there's some uh, some accusations of like they're hiding behind flaws or, you know, it's like, right. and, and so there were some releases that came out that was a little bit of like, a, okay, piss off. We we're actually, we're really good. We know what we're doing, but the Cali specifically was like so fruity and to watch their, their new make without that layer, that yeah. lens, that smoke lens, just gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. 
and, and even the Octomore, I can't remember if it was 10 one, um, one, the first white bottle one uh-huh. that was just like so fruity. And, uh, the, 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 the X bourbon barrel peated that we've got that's currently in Salterne that's coming out later next year, mm-hmm. later this year. It's, it's kind of that vein. Like when you're already kind of getting some zest and you're getting apricots and peaches and all this stuff. And then with that smoke on top, it's just like, man, if you throw some, 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 some nice lighter dessert wine on there, like why not? And it's, oh, it's probably my favorite thing. We haven't released it yet, but it's probably my favorite thing we've done. It just makes so much sense um, to me aesthetically. Well, it's, um, it's just, I, I agree with you, but you know, what's interesting about that is you're at some cafe trying to pastis in Europe one afternoon, right? And you don't mm-hmm. think anything of it. You just say, I just want an espresso. I just want to watch people smoking in Parisian streets or wherever the fuck you are, right? Mm-hmm. But then you taste something and you're like, oh, oh. And then everything kind of comes together. And, and it's interesting because I always want to believe this romantic tale that, you know, Jared, you're out there looking at the stars and Waco and all of a sudden this fascinating idea just you, you, you pull it out of nowhere. But actually it feels like, or rather I would say, does it feel like the things of which you create and combine come from personal experience? Yeah. And, and, and they also, I, I I don't, I'm not mad at people that have a different uh, way of interacting with their creative work, Mm. but I don't like talking about engineering whiskey. Mm -hmm. That's not interesting to me. It's not compelling. I don't care about the chemistry. Um, We were making whiskey and beer and wine when we thought that fermentation was magic, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't even know microorganisms existed. So it can't, we can't, uh, there's, you're completely spitting in the face of all of human history and all of this accumulated wisdom, not, not science, not knowledge, just wisdom of how to do things and how to do it well. Yeah. That took a really long time to accumulate. And a lot of people trying things and passing that on to get to a spot where we can do this. And we did it. And we didn't know what Saccharomyces was. And we didn't know what isoamyl acetate or oak lactones. You don't need to know that for it to be good. Um, oh, it's a tool. It's a tool. That. Yeah. You should learn it. It's your trade. It's your craft, for God's sake. Like, do your homework. Right. And then those are things you can employ as you need them. Um, do, you, do you feel that there is you simply have to have a maestro, like a, a maestro compositional mind. You have to, in other words, you have to feel it, not make it. Does that make sense? Yeah, to some degree. Um, I think the early years for anybody when you're like newer to a hobby or a job felt a little bit more diligent. You're like doing homework, you're researching, mm-hmm. you're trying everything you can, you're keeping notes. And at some point you've got to let that go. Um, and it also doesn't hurt that I feel like uh, as every time we kind of like, oh man, we got a new product and we're rolling something out historically from the very, very beginning all up until recently, not everything is a you know double gold, it's a home run, but like mm-hmm. in general, stuff we do is, is pretty well received. And so you kind of eventually stop being as hesitant and you start trusting that like when we find a single barrel that is just like, oh, I mean, if, if, if it makes you want to shut up, and if someone wants to, t- <laughs> someone someone wants you to say what's so great about it, and you don't. That's really not what I want to do right now. Is like dissect this for you. Yeah. What I want to do is hand you the glass and hope that you go, oh shit, 
yeah, that's, oh man. It's kind of like, uh, I, I compare a sports a decent amount or music for that matter. Uh, you do not want to be thinking about scales when you're on stage. Right. You shoot, free throws is the hard one because the way it's set up, you end up overthinking it. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to. You want to put in the work and think about your form, runners, whatever, while you're practicing so that when it comes time to like really do it, that that's you're going to count on muscle memory. You're going to count on intuition and other stuff. I think whiskey's a little bit like that, at least oh. at this stage of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, the guys joke too. I, I'm so tired of writing tasting notes. I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. I don't want to break down every... I don't want to have a competition, which is really kind of a little bit of what happens where mm-hmm. I'm going to pull out more obscure tasting and aromas and tasting references in here than you can. So my notes compared to the other guys on the blending team and the distilling team, they're just, they're debating whether it's caraway or, or anise or, um, you know, if, if it's the bananas, uh, brown skin or like the flesh is brown, you know, and that's all valid. Sure, it's all sure. totally true. And mine are just like the sweet, this, this sample is the, the body's great. The acidity and sweetness are really balanced. And I find the the nose is really expressive. I, mean, I don't want to talk about which debate, whether it's jasmine or lavender and all that stuff. Um, and, and I think maybe I did earlier and I've kind of just, I'm kind of over that now and don't really, there's, it's, it's a, it's a whole thing, you know, yeah. oh, I and know it gives that. a, it gives one experience that has facets and has movement and it has narrative. It has a, it starts and ends and there's a middle and there's, it tells a story very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, that, that's more, that's more important to me. I think these, I, I think you're right. I think as we get older, it's more about feeling it instead of trying to process it and explain it to, cause in a way maybe, and, and I wouldn't say that necessarily is the case for you, but when we first start doing this thing, we're trying to convince ourselves that it's good enough to like, mm-hmm. you know, and then you get to a point where like, I just don't give a shit. I've been doing it long enough. I, I think this is fine. And I, it feels good, you know, but it's talking about expressing tasting notes and talking about process, which, yeah, I mean, fuck, man, you just add nauseam to some of this stuff, but you're a figurehead for Balcones distilling. I know you do tastings. Obviously that stuff's kind of probably come off a little bit because it's shut down, but when you're out there on the stage, so to speak, do you enjoy that being that representative in, in a sense performing? Yeah. Uh, the smaller, uh, once again, Maybe some of this comes back to the punk stuff, but I, I think I was always really lucky. I have a, I have something I'm put together in a way that even some of my other musician friends aren't. I've I've got another good friend who was, um, you know, headed towards stardom after college. Opened mm-hmm. for Wilco on a big tour, got cool. picked up. You know, his indie record got repressed, and they paid him a bunch of money to do a second, and then it got shelved. And it was like a very quick. You're going to be huge too you might as well move back home to wherever you're from kind of thing, like in a matter wow. of years. Wow. And he lives in Waco and he remodels houses now. Um, and now he's, he's finally gotten to the point after like a decade of not doing music where he just puts it out for himself, just throws it on Bandcamp. Mm-hmm. He's recording crap on his phone, doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't remember, and part of it's punk scene too, but I just never really remember caring. It was all, you know, that scene especially, it's so much about, you better be doing what you want to, you better be saying what you want to say. You better be expressing if you've got influences, even if they're weird. And I always use bad brains as a great example. Like you got a bunch of weird or subhumans is another great one. Uh Like you're going to throw in a bunch of weird genres of music that normally don't go together. You're a punk band. 
you're not supposed to care about that. Um, and I, I, I've been lucky. I think when I did ceramics, it was kind of the same too. I, I feel like whatever that, t- that takes to not overthink and over worry about reception. And um, those are things I think about later. Mm-hmm. But in the moment, it's, it's, um, it feels a little more calculated in a sense and also a little bit, uh, you know, it's not flow state or anything, but there's a little bit of forget, f- stop existing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and the opposite of that engineering approach, like the, 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 the whiskeys will kind of like any creative process, it'll kind of tell you where it needs to go. Um, I had a good friend that ran a studio here in town. And he used to be very passionate about not trying to make perfect records and that there really wasn't anything like that. That's not a thing. It's like, we are here today and it's called a record because today we are going to make an auditory record of what is about to happen. We are going to record this moment and what happens in this moment is going to be recorded. And that's why artists have a 40 year career and there's multiple versions of on different records of different songs. Um, and you may, I'm sure you've been there too. And you're like, I kind of always imagined a, a version of that that was like this and like mm-hmm. it slowed down or you might even throw something in three, four that was in four, you know, and all of a sudden it's different. And so that's kind of what whiskey feels like to me. It's just like, man, you could imagine that with a really interesting, more floral top note. And then you go, man, do we have any barrels like that? And then you put it together and then someone goes, that doesn't really taste like how, whichever expression you're talking about. Yeah. And so then you're like, do we have room in the calendar for like, a new named expression that maybe only happens once because this combination is right. Yeah, um, yeah. And so there's a little bit of that. If you've done the homework, athlete, musician, uh, writer, whatever it is you do, acting, you've done your, your vocal warm-ups and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Now's not the time for that. Now's the time to do your job. When you get there, you can kind of get led along. And once again, not to get too anthropomorphic about it, or I hope it never comes across new agey because I don't mean it like that. I guess if anything, it'd be more like animist, but mm-hmm. it's really, you don't, it's actually more scientific, <laughs> not even less. You don't have to get uh, high to, to look at it this way. You don't have to go to do, do DNT or something or peyote. The fact is human beings aren't making whiskey by themselves. Like that's ridiculous. Right. So I've got species of grain that of course, even the ones that come from Texas don't come from where I live. Mm-hmm. They come from their own bioregions with their own microflora. They've got yeast and wild, you know, they've got wild yeast and bacteria on them that they bring with them mm-hmm. that goes into my tanks. Um, you pitch things that were cultured. Uh, more wild yeast and bacteria get in the fermenter from the air. So what's blooming at the time is is a participant. Um, you're, you're putting putting these things in oak that also were alive once and we're living in a different part of the world than here. Um, and so there are so many, even if we're not comfortable saying that these are all uh, actors with agency, mm-hmm. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. We don't have to, we don't have to go that far if, if that's uncomfortable for someone, but we are not doing this just like more of our body mass is, is, is uh, foreign bacteria and, and um, then ours, mm-hmm. you know, there's more parasites and you know all, all kinds of other stuff. We're not even the majority of our own body mass when we step on a scale. So it's just, I guess, the like is is the Earth a cell from f- far enough away 
Mm. You get far, far enough away. Does it look like an electron to something that's that big, that's that expansive? I don't know. But we're not doing this by ourselves. And so you don't have to talk to it. You don't have to decide that it has feelings, but it is a conversation and not even in an abstracted way. This is collaborative. This is collaborative. And so if you're, you have to listen to it, you have to, on some level, if not explicitly, be asking it what it wants and what get to know it mm-hmm. so that if it could be a better version of itself or if there's a take on its character that would be interesting to tell that story as a variant mm-hmm. then that you can that you can do that and you're not fighting anything you're not you're working alongside things that are there mm-hmm. um, so the, the one of the coolest things about doing both American single malt and Texas whiskey is that that's kind of the state of both of those things, the main areas we've gotten to work in, you know, we're basically blank slate. Yeah. Um, which means it's wide open. Um, and I think you could take that and decide to go rogue, you know, mm-hmm. I'm a rugged individualist. I'm going to make my way and leave my mark. Or you could say this has never been done before at, a, at any level, especially with the Texas whiskey, us and Dan. And, you know, until both of us have whiskey coming out, no one knew what was going to happen. Mm. We didn't until you start checking barrels. You don't know what's going to happen. It's never been done here before. So in my mind, it's still like, a, hey, we're new here. You know, planet, this part of the world. We're new here. We're trying to make whiskey here. We barely know you. We're trying to get to know you better and uh, figure out without treating you as, as a, an opponent or something mm. to be conquered or manipulated, um, how can we do what we do in a way that kind of can come alongside and we can we can be the best partners we can um, in figuring out what kind of whiskey wants to be made here and so, how, so, does it, how does it want to end up, you know? Dude, it's such a, that's such an interesting, it's, I love, and it's not necessarily a philosophy as much maybe as, as an existence and how you coexist with these raw ingredients which have their own lives and their ecosystems and stuff. Uh, I, it's just it's just fascinating to me because everybody thinks about whiskey differently, and everybody. I mean, that's probably an understatement. But something I want to talk to you about, obviously in that vein too, is I've never once sipped a Balcones and thought this is bad. This isn't for me. I never once thought that, and maybe because it's fucking beautiful whiskey that we should not try to put into some other template for how we expect whiskey to be. That's one thing I think, but I've seen so much lately that I'm given that you, your punk rock attitude. I might know how you respond to this, but people talking shit, you know, and they're not, they're not probably skilled tasters, but they're just given really perfunctory. They're just dismissing Balcones whiskey. Does that ever get under your skin at all? Um, not too much. I mean, maybe not surprising to go along with some of the rest of my interests, like kind of an over, over centralized kind of commodity way of doing things is just so not interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong. I feel like it's super easy just to prove your, your nerd points to crap on stuff. Um, I hope I never do that. I hope I'm honest about my opinions, but like, I'm not a big makers fan. Yep. People love to be like, man, I don't know why anyone's trying to chase down Weller 12. It's shit. I think Weller 12 is absolutely amazing. Um, yeah. It was better, but it's, it's good sure. whiskey. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, the ones I'm opening 
Oh, well, yeah, of course, of course. They're, old, they're, old, they're an old bottle. I haven't the, bought any in a, in a long time. The plastic um, ones, yeah. Uh, but that being said, I mean, you know, craft beer scene's the same way. Uh, we, we were joking about like the, the, the wine finishing arms race. So whiskey's kind of the same. Like whoever can find the most obscure, ooh, I'm not even sure what that is. What kind of weird, you know, the first time I saw like a Tokai or something and people are like, mm-hmm. ooh, well, it's not Porter Sherry. Wow, it's really esoteric and exotic. Um, but of course, the, what matters is like, is the whiskey, whiskey better or not, you know? Right. Um, same with bands. People love to drop, oh, you're not familiar with, oh yeah, they played like three shows in um, uh, South Bay, uh, you know, in 82, summer of 82. Then they broke up. <laughs> One of the guys went on to this other band, you know, and, uh, you know, whatever. I don't know why we decide to weaponize uh, our knowledge and like our hobbies. Mm. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I would always just assume that's mostly got to be insecurity. And I'm not saying that someone who doesn't like us is insecure. Um, I suspect with some of the language I've seen, they're pretty insecure about their ability to taste things. But they, that's my sure. opinion. Yeah. But oh, sorry, I got on a big tangent. But the fact of the matter is still that um, depending on how how uh, exploratory your own personality is with, with your exploration of spirits, for example, um, or how attentive you are in the moment when you are doing what I would consider sensory work. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a pretty big, there's a lot of inertia to Kentucky bourbon. We've all consumed a massive amount of it. It's mm-hmm. the, it's a lot of what's out there. Same with Scotch single malt versus American, you know, like, that's just statistically, it's pretty likely people are going to prefer that. Mm. You know what I mean? Except for people that kind of got into whiskey in the last five to 10 years and kind of cut their teeth on craft, which there's a lot of that now. Mm-hmm. And no, Kentucky bourbon doesn't feel like home to their palate because that's not what they grew up on They're, you know, in their whiskey life cycle. Um, but yeah, I know people say it all the time. I'm super not interested in apologizing um, for people that do or don't like, I don't, I I don't care. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also don't try to drop names and stuff until, unless people get ugly. Um, but you know, if I were to publish really nice things that have been said to me by somebody like Charlie McLean or Steve Beal Mm -hmm. or Bill Lumsden while sitting and drinking my whiskey, um, if I cared, to refute any of that stuff. And I don't, because your palate is so subjective too. Like, I'm not going to convince you. Um, and hopefully, if it's Houston, maybe Charlie can pop in sometime and like, hey, you know, let me see if I can't, let me, let me see if I can't pour you one of like the 30 things we released last year. <laughs> Surely we've got something that you might like. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've seen this, some of the comments too. And there's, there's, there's poorly made things with faults and then there's personal preferences. Like, I, for one, am really growing to really appreciate column bourbon. And I didn't like, I, I would rail against column stills for a long time. And man, there's just something when you get some of that, those, some of the body and the oily stuff scooped out from a pot still. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because I drink too much Kentucky growing up. I don't know. Yeah. But now that's there. And I kind of, 12 years later, I kinda, that's kind of what I want. I kind of want it thinner. And so we're trying to play around with, there's ways we can get less body over on the pot still. And, um, can we reflux harder and use our gear and still make something that kind of takes a couple steps that direction? Yeah. Or you don't get that much cherry. We tend to get a lot of stone fruit notes. And I'm like, yeah, but in a 
Weeder, I want cherry, man. How do we do that? Do we need to make yeast changes? Do we need to change fermentation temperature? I don't know. But um, yeah, I think it's totally fine. Do your homework and then try your best to not worry. Uh, especially if you have don't, no reason to. Right. Um, it's not for everybody. If we were making something for everybody, you know who makes something for everybody? No brand that anybody in any whiskey club buys. Mm-hmm. Um, and not even... You know, you, is, it, you know, is it even Seagram's anymore anyway? But you know, yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, you know what's not, you know what no one hates? It's also what no one loves. So, <laughs> um, so it's, it's better to have well, loved and lost than to have not loved at all, right? I mean, you can't, you're going to take some chances, and a lot of people, not just in Texas, even internationally, what Texas can do and has done, you can watch people go, holy shit. What is this? Mm-hmm. I have no idea even how to begin to process what is in this bottle. And a lot of Texas has that quality. And you can decide for yourself that like, yeah, yeah, I get it. And it's not, not for me. That's totally cool. Um, it's like, I know people that can't, can't handle um, uh, a lot of Indian and Taiwanese single malts. And I find them fascinating. And maybe it's because they're more akin to what's going on here. And it's like, because those climates are, bonkers yeah cavalon for instance um, it yeah. totally like that yeah and so but yeah if you're if you've been an old school you know highland slash maybe japanese guy this stuff is nutty it's crazy mm-hmm. um but i think yeah. the world's the whiskey world's going to be better for all this crazy stuff from all over the brand new regions of the world making whiskey that never did before and yeah it's not all it's not all going to work but some of it works and and we get Flavors that just weren't a part of the conversation before. Yeah, it becomes more diverse, which actually is a huge thing for people to accept other kinds of people, to accept other kinds of flavors and everything. Has it, you know, do you see, I don't see this and I doubt you would, but is there a ceiling to what can be done at Balcones with your knowledge and your skill set? Is there a point where you say, I actually have hit I've hit a, well, a breaking point. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Um, I've always figured that the feedback loop is really long mm. for whiskey, not even as long for here as it would be other places. Um, but yeah, you can try something and not, not know for, you know, two, three years how successful it was. And then you make the next adjustment because you kind of already knew, mm-hmm. let's try this. And if that works, maybe let's up that to this percent or maybe let's also go this next, the next step would be to do this to it. Um, so yeah, if it takes you a decade to make three or four variants of a thing before you feel like you're kind of there, uh, I, I have a hard time imagining running out of legitimate artistic questions we have. And the other good thing is it's pretty... Um, I pat myself on the back about this because it has its pitfalls, but I'm a pretty hands-off. Like I don't, I'm not, I don't micromanage folks. I try to make things as collaborative as possible. Um, I like, I like as, as flat of a structure as you can get to. Mm-hmm. Um, usually the people that are doing whatever job it is that they do are probably have the best ideas on what could be done better in that area. Um, so try to make time for listening, try to make it inclusive. So yeah, I've got, um, you know, Gabe, Gabe Richard is kind of my current right-hand guy in the blending room and he, he manages the warehouse. And like, I, I don't have a need to have any level of specific involvement with stuff. And so we have a, a release coming up soon that we did. Um, 
a first fill and second fill bottling of malt that went into it's Texas barley that went into um, some Hack Madeira uh, oh, barrels. Shit. Okay. Um, I think that stuff's about three years old, three and a half years old now. But um, he worked on the blend, and he basically by the time he came to me, it was like there was no combination of the first use, which is like over the top, you know, like a normal like Oloroso and PX kind of first fill heavy on the finish. And then the second one, which is a much more subtle. So, the, you know, whiskey got transferred out and we've got more whiskey got put in. Um, and we do that a lot just so you can kind of control the finish level. Um, everything's finished, but varying degrees. And he was like, yeah, there's no combination of putting the two together that works. And so I put two smaller blends together. So now we can actually talk about, here's what first fills do. And here's when you get that out and you refill it again. And it's a much softer finishing. I was like, yeah, that's a great story to tell. And then I checked the whiskeys and they were great. Um, I think we tweaked like one barrel, you know, and I don't, and, and luckily you get the, you get yourself around this right kind of people. I've asked him like three or four times on projects that were either his idea or that he kind of did the bulk of the legwork on. Mm -hmm. I'm like, man, we need to pick something and throw your name on a label. Like, I don't care. You should. And I love the fact that like, he doesn't want to do that, Hmm. you know, because that's not who he is. That's has nothing to do with why he's doing what he's doing. Um, which makes it even more fun to want to give that to somebody that like, no, if you're going to drive a project from beginning to end, there's no reason why like, my name's got to be on all these bottles, especially now that we have enough creative people and that turns over too. So all that to say, it's never just like uh, the collaborative nature of making whiskey in general. Right. Um, it happens in here too. So I don't feel stagnant because other people get weird ideas. Um, but I do have a pretty long list and mine are usually the weirdest. Um, <laughs> I just remembered, surprised. yeah, I just remembered yesterday something that we had talked about probably eight, nine, 10 years ago. Uh, and I haven't homebrewed in a really, really long time. We're brewing beer here now too, which is fun. Oh, no kidding. But that's kind of like reignited some ideas mm-hmm. that I'd forgotten about. But um, there's a, as far as I know, the only bottle and I have one, I have one here somewhere, but it's not very good. Anybody who likes sour beers, um, Three Fontaine and, uh, you know, Belgian, uh, Lanebeck Brewery had a fermentation that went bad and they sent it to an eau de vie distillery that was closed, probably like a schnapps distillery or something. And I don't know enough about the process. I don't like the, it's whiskey, it's white. It's so it's like, they call it eau de vie whiskey or like eau de whiskey or something. Um, Belgian white unaged whiskey. Um, so I don't know if, because the fermentation got messed up, if that, I don't know how it was distilled. I don't know any of the parameters to, to write out, say, man, making sour beer into whiskey is a horrible idea, but we have been wanting to do it for a long time. And, um, we've actually got a bunch of, uh, barrels that Jester King decided weren't fit for blends. Mm-hmm. They toted it all up. So we have this, you know, sacro lacto PDO, uh, Brett mixed culture, fully fermented out beer that they decided they weren't going to blend. Um, and bottle that we were going to use. We just were out there today and we're like, oh yeah, we've got to, we've got to mash something, but we're going to use that as our, as our pitch. Oh wow! So, so there's their mixed culture beer is going to be the hundred percent pitch for, for, um, for a whiskey. And we've done a few things like that with them before, but, um, trying to play around with what if that, what if mixed beer culture was kind of your back set as opposed mm-hmm. to like a normal back set approach. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's incredible. Well, it, it, I never, I don't worry about Joel. I don't worry about a shortage of ideas. I don't worry about product not being strange, but also riveting. I think you guys fill in all those holes for me as, a, as someone who enjoys whiskey and spirits in general. You Thanks, know, man. 
yeah, it's, 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 it's incredible stuff. And I, I really have enjoyed being part of the ride and like kind of seeing how things have progressed. So I got, you know, we can talk about whiskey all day, of course, but of course I didn't want to get into, Oh yeah, you were a brewer that started making whiskey. Dude, that shit's been documented a hundred times over. So sorry if I skipped across some of this stuff. Oh, that no, people I don't are like, care. Those, yeah. are the, those are the things that like, you don't really, they're not fun to talk about. Anymore. Yeah, it's, it's not. And, and I, I just want to get a sense of the, the man himself and kind of how you are and what your paradigm is on stuff. So I got two more questions for you. Yep. One of which is, and I know this might be difficult only because, you know, you work for a company and stuff, but do you see yourself wanting and needing something entirely your own, not under the moniker of Balcones? No, I thought about that. Um, I think because I'm not really an entrepreneur at heart, like mm -hmm. I'm a maker, like making is really like my connection to what we do here and everything else feels like I need to be smart and I need to understand sales and distribution models. And I need to like interact with marketing folks. I have to do all these things because I, I, I love what we do. I believe in what we do and we need to make that sustainable long as long as we can, which means we have to do a good job on all that other stuff. Yeah. But even our, even with investors, even with the guys that are in head of sales and marketing, like they fully understand that to me, these are how we get to the why. And this is not the why mm -hmm. the why is this. And if it was 100 barrels a year or 20,000 a year, I don't care. Um, but I do want to keep doing it. And I want to make sure everybody who works here feels really well taken care of and that they think we do it, that we're putting out something rad. Um, so that's the only value to me of all the rest of the stuff. Okay. Um, but because of that, the brand building is just hard. All of that like uh, awareness at the consumer level, that's like the hardest stuff to do. Mm -hmm. And because of the way I am, that's like the least fun thing of doing it. So I've got pretty much open hand when we have a weird idea and we commit some money to it and some barrels to it. And four years later, it's like took nine days to sell out, you know, across the state. Then I usually don't, you get less and less pushback every time. Yeah. Um, actually, now they're the ones that get ideas and they go, yeah, what, what, what's the next thing that's going to sell out in nine days? It's like, man, hold on. <laughs> um, but it does win you some freedom. And, and also this is rare, but kind of the uh, investment agreement we have and uh, has, they have no creative control whatsoever, mm. um, which is fantastic. Uh, obviously, if something's not making any sense, if you're laying down X amount of barrels of something that never sells. We probably had to talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, we had a conversation early on about, I really have no problem making more or less of anything. Mm -hmm. that, that's, what sells that's what sales tells you. That's how you break down your production year and how much you're laying down of different things. Um, it's like, but I don't really want to hear from you know, some regional specs meeting you were at a new idea for like right. something we should make. Um, and there's nothing we need to be told that we can't make because no, there's nothing we have that like, yeah, nobody, just nobody buys that. So yeah, maybe there's one fermenter a year if peated, if it's that small of a market, then that's how much we'll do. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not, that's, uh, we'll just, we'll decide what we make and don't make. And then you can just tell us how much based on how long it sits around or we can debate price points and all that other crap, which is just really the legwork that like facilitates a few handful of people that get to really have a great everyday, you know, spending your time trying to 
trying to hold the hand of this whiskey and figure out just like, I mean, it's, it's, it's 12 years old, you know, the whiskey is. Yeah. Um, so in the sense that it's generational too, like the whiskeys are only coming out two, three, four years in the bottle. Um, but they have a shorter life than humans. So we've watched generations of, and so it's, it's just the beginning of, uh, really this whole like people group, like Texas whiskey is like, it's like humans got dropped in here and then we're going to come back in a long time and like see what kind of culture develops and what the vibe is and what they're thinking, what they're all about. Right. And I feel like that's where we at with Texas whiskey. This is, uh, it's not Lord of the Flies, but I mean, it's, you know, where there's a, or, or, or what's the, uh, oh man, what's the island? I feel like they have, they find one every decade anyway, where it's like, oh, we found this people group, like somehow they got marooned here and like completely oh, right, separated. Right. And like, they're like- Papua New Guinea is still super isolated, right? Yeah. yeah. And people are like really tall or really short. Like there's something about them that's like super specific. Cause yeah, their whole gene pool came from like seven people that got drifted in a storm and ended up there, right? So yeah. like very specific traits. Yeah, I don't know. Was, no, it's, I, I like, I love it. I love it. We're going to find, we're going to, yeah, just going to find out. So yeah, we just, it's, I feel like, I mean, in some degree, it's a weird mix of like, yeah, you're, you're conducting maybe. Yeah. You're not performing like they're, I mean, they're, you have components. Strengths, right? So you have to bring out those strengths of the thing that came to the table. You can't. Somewhere between that and like, almost like an anthropologist or something, you know, you're kind of trying to observe, trying to not fiddle with it as much. Some combination of those two is a little bit what it feels like to me. Um, and yeah, I feel super grateful. Most of the, most of the musicians that I'm, I'm big fans of, I feel like there's a, a level of not taking what they've where they are and what they've got for granted. And um, I don't know if you're if, if you're are you familiar with Aesop Rock, uh, oh, New York yeah. rap, New York mm-hmm. rapper, but I saw him a few years back in Austin with Homeboy Sandman, and it had been a while since he had put a record out. Um, and it was like one of the most authentically humble. And right there from stage. And he's like, anybody who was following Def Chucks from like the early 2000s. And it's like, he's not wrong. Him and LP are like the only guys from that group still doing a lot of music mm-hmm. or like successfully. And he's like, I only get to do this because of you, you know, to speaking to a crowd of like only like 300 people or whatever. It, yeah. I think we're at Barracuda or something. Um, but I've heard, Mark, I've heard, I've watched some live Mark Knopfler that's similar. Uh-huh. Oh, really? Um, there's a there's a show where he was talking to getting home and being frustrated about, I think it was uh, Sultans of Swing or mm-hmm. um, and he was like, I just can't play it. I've been playing that song and I just don't want to. I'm just tired of it. And his wife was like, Oh, did you do the solo? You know, he's like, No, nah, I kind of improvised. I was bored. Like I just had to like try a, a different take on it. Well, she's like, well, surely you did the little noodly bit in the, on the second <laughs> bar. And he's like, no, I don't think I did. And she's like, he tells this whole story about how his wife basically lectured him, telling him that people have, you know, played these at their weddings. They have, they've probably been played at wakes, you know? Um, but she gives him this whole long lecture about these songs don't belong to you anymore. Oh, they mean a lot to a lot of other people and uh, you need to figure out, you need to just do the work to figure out which aspects of these songs do their memories and their connection to it hinge on. Mm. And you can let yourself play with the other stuff. But I mean, especially when you get to some of his iconic solos, like you need to know which parts you can mess with and which parts you can't. 
and it has to go. Yeah. You play in between there and then come back to that, but you can't play with that. Yeah. Um, and he tells a really great story and then he goes into playing the song oh, and, he's like, a, I'm, and he's like, I'm going to play it like it is on the record because that's how I gave it to you. And now, and now somehow I think I have the right to take it back. And, uh, oof, and it's just, like, man, that's awesome. This is, um, this, all right. So I get asked this last question, but that yeah. I wanted that punctuate that thought because that is the whiskey. That is the whiskey. So, all right, we're going to go punk rock one last bit. Last question for you. You know, you can drink any of the marks. I don't care what it is. All your marks I've quite enjoyed, but you can have a drink with any British punk rock player anywhere in the world. Doesn't matter where, who, and they can be living or deceased. Who might you like to sit down and have a drink with? Be a tough call, but not too hard. <laughs> um, it, they would, it would either have to be someone from Crass or someone from the Subhumans okay. to start with. Okay. So Dick Fish from the Subhumans would be fascinating. And he's a pretty fun... He's, he's, he's got a little bit of like... A, not quite... He, he's super serious and scathing in his commentary, but there's a little bit of like the Jello Biafra. Like he's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you've looked at him, he's kind of goofy compared to... He, does, he doesn't have any of that tough guy crap going on. But then on the Crass side... I think Penny Rambeau and Steve Ingram both for different reasons would be fascinating to talk to Steve because he's continued to play music and has kind of very, you know, gotten a little bit out there. Um, and then as far as I know, Penny still lives at that, you know, comp commune they, they bought back in the seventies and like, they still are just doing weird punk hippie anarchist stuff there. And that would be fascinating too. But is that where you're headed, Jared? Too? I, don't, I don't know. Commune. I, I, I imagine like, a, you know, sitting in a pile of mud with a loincloth on maybe at some point might be nice. <laughs> I've always wanted to build like a cabin, you know, like actually like from nothing, you know, yep. just like it'd take years and years and years, but like, yeah, just chop some trees down and do the work. And, um, be nice to have a little, little place completely unplugged to like go be every once in a while. Of course. Natural fermentation, mate. That's how it goes, right? <laughs> oh yeah. That's my, that's one of my other. So Tommy, my production manager, he, he does this with my beer idea list. He's like, if I have a weird one, if I have a weird idea and he thinks like it kind of does make sense, but he doesn't really want to do it. Mm-hmm. He told me this the other day. He's like, he'll keep me talking and I'll keep giving other ideas. And inherently some of them will be better, which means the one that he just doesn't want to do gets pushed down far enough where it doesn't have to get done. Um, but so here's another one. And I really hope we, we do, we do this successfully enough. I can go to my money guys and it'll be like, yeah, we don't even, I'm not even asking for money. We'll do it with money that's in the bank. Um, but what I want to do is combine those and try to come up with a way to do, um, a completely off-grid uh, whiskey experience thing at some uh-huh, point, uh-huh. where we're gonna we're gonna hand thresh and separate grain. Um, you know, maybe I guess maybe we've got a a, a mule and a you know a, a, a grist mill to grind with. I don't know, direct fire with wood. Um, you can bring your cell phone, but you're not gonna have service that kind of thing. And we're gonna have hammocks, and we're gonna snare some squirrels and whatever, get Dude. weird and and make whiskey and come stay for. 10 days because we're going to ferment and then we're going to distill and distill. And, Incredible. Um, I think it'd be fun. I would enjoy it. And I think, I think people need a break. I, if you want to do a whiskey thing and combine that with getting away for a little bit, maybe. I think so too. So we're going to talk more yeah. about this. I'm going to stop recording, but Jared, thanks so much for taking the time out. Um, much to talk about, mate. I'll see you at the distillery soon. So thanks so much for taking. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Man. Appreciate it.
Well, there we have it. Master Stiller for Balcones Whiskey, Jared Hempstead. Talking about lots of stuff, man. He reached out recently just about music, you know, and that's one of the really big bonding factors I have with a lot of folks in this industry. But he plays, he writes, very pensive, gets to talk about punk rock a lot. And I love the work, you know, especially now kind of understanding a little more where the work comes from psychologically, mentally, cognitively, it's even more interesting to me to sip more and more stuff from Balcones. Yeah, I can't wait to see what you guys are up to next. Apparently, there's something with some peat and some wine finish that really, really interests me. So I'm going to take a brief moment. It's been a tough shutdown for everybody. I've used that time to process some things about personal loss and things about gaining and all of this gratitude. And I've released a new record. That's right, 20 frigging tracks from my moniker love at 20 it's called suffocated honestly it's been moving folks it's moved me i've been crying a little too easily these days but i would love for you to check it out if you're on spotify love at 20 suffocated is the record or if you want to stream it in a different old way love at 220.bandcamp.com all right enough with the self-promotion thanks everybody for listening to show to v with mike g no matter how your house smells again like cooked sotol or if you're thinking these little agave ornamental plants I've got on my speaker, they'll never die. I thought they were real. They're not. They're plastic. Please keep dancing.